testing. Does it sound okay? Yeah? Good morning, everyone. Happy September. I know we've been in it for 10 days, but the weather's just now getting a little cooler in the morning, so it really feels like it now. <clears throat> My name is Imani, and I will be um, talking to you about some really cool things this morning in Sunday school. Our topic of the day is Be Ye Perfect. And so we have an overview of a lot of different scriptures um, of some really committed men and women in scripture that were upright and perfect before God. We're going to talk about what that looks like. Um, we're going to talk about a few examples of people who, who failed to not move in that perfection and the reasons why. And um, just some things that we can look out for in that way too. So we are going to start in the fifth chapter of Matthew. Verses 43 through 47. <clears throat> and verse 43 says, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he makes his sun to rise on evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And verse 47 says, And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Okay, so let's set the scene. So this was the end of chapter 5. Let's go back a little bit. So the end of chapter 4, Jesus is preaching. He's preaching all throughout Galilee, and his fame is spread even to Syria. So he's healing people. He's healing um, the possessed, the diseased. Scripture talks about the lunatic and the tormented, and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. <coughs> so... That's the end of chapter 4. And the beginning of chapter 5 is, you know, as the Beatitudes. Also, people refer to this block of text as the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, as we know, Jesus went up to a mountain with the disciples, and the multitudes followed close behind. And when he opened his mouth and taught the scriptures, he did so as one having authority, not just as the scribes did. So this is kind of the setup for what we're going to ultimately talk about this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> there are many attributes that can accompany a person who is perfect in their heart towards God. And we're going to read a few more verses of the Beatitudes to see what. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. So this is Jesus' teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, so we have two words there that are kind of um, italicized. The first word is meek, and it's the Greek word praus, and it means to have a gentleness of spirit. It means to have a disposition with God that allows us to accept his dealings as good, 
that we understand that God has our, our well-being and our, our welfare in his mind as he's um, going through life with us. And so because we know that, um, we don't dispute or we don't resist. And so in the Old Testament, the meek are those who wholly rely on God rather than their own strength to defend themselves against injustice. Okay, so that's meek. And um, the second word is inherit. So that's a Greek word, and we're gonna, I think it's kleronomio. I was looking at that earlier. It made me think of those um, hip hop renditions of Romeo and Juliet that we used to have to suffer through in the 90s in English class. <laughs> but yeah, kleronomio is the Greek word for inherit. It means to be an heir to or to obtain something through inheritance, to receive a portion that is assigned to one, to become a partaker of, to obtain. And inheritance literally speaks of gaining authority or control over something entrusted to us to manage. Okay, so the crux of this message happens in Matthew 5:48. So it's the scripture that is the inspiration for this, this entire teaching. So Jesus sums up everything, all of the Beatitudes, all of the teaching that he says um, there on the mount. He ends it by saying, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And the, the Greek word for perfect is teleos, and it means to be complete, to participate in a cooperative fellowship with God, <coughs> that's going towards an appointed conclusion. Of course, that conclusion is from God and we're partnering with him. So <clears throat> if we put that definition in where the word perfect is, paraphrased, it says be complete, okay? In a cooperative fellowship with God for his plan because God is complete and he is laboring according to his plan. So that is the definition of perfect. That is what we want to be. That is what God is. That's the goal. And the gold. <clears throat> so our next scripture is Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And verse 13 reads, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, <clears throat> And reaching forth into those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything you be bothered, oh, you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which will walk as ye have for us in, in sample. Sorry, I was getting tripped up there. That um, King James English. You gotta, you gotta like jump in like double dutch and get all of the syllables just right, or it just, yeah. <laughs> but um, again, that's the Greek word teleos. As uh, he said, let us therefore be perfect. And Numbers 14, 
verse 24 says, But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit in him and has followed me fully, in him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. So you see this theme of uh, God rewarding people for being fully devoted to him. And when people are fully after God's heart, you see him showing up for them in really big ways. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 through 14 says, And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded you. For now would the Lord have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people, because you have not kept that which the Lord has commanded you. So you see a huge contrast there. Um, and it's actually in one verse. So we have a lot of examples of people, um, you know, being upright before God, trusting him fully, going forward um, with their heart open. And then we have a few examples of people that, that failed to, to walk perfectly, to be who, who he says they are. But in this verse, you see a direct contrast because there's Saul, who we know I, David, and then we have David, who's a person after God's own heart. And so um, the other is characterized as someone who has done foolishly and lost all as a result of it. So <clears throat> Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And when Abram was 99, oh, well, 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the mighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and, and God talked to him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come from thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in the generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And then um, verse 8 says, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. So I love the way God thinks. So he's telling him right now, like, this is who I've called you to be. This is where we're going. This is what the future holds. You know, this is what I will account to you and your generations and your seeds through righteousness if you just continue to be perfect before me. And um, the word for perfect there is tamiyim. It's a Hebrew word, and it means integrity, truth, complete, and without blemish. Okay, because he said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. 
So God has issued the mandate to be perfect um, so that the covenant they would make could be upheld. <coughs> so just in this short time, we have some really detailed themes appearing. We read about relying on God instead of our own strength, um, gaining authority over something that is entrusted to us, and doing these things before the Father will make us complete as we walk out God's appointed plan to possess the land and to gain new territory. So now that we've seen some examples about righteous purpose, let's look at a couple of examples of people who moved in their own strength instead of according to his timetable and plan. And um, this next scripture I think is going to be um, pivotal because it's going to segue into upcoming passages notating failed purpose. So Numbers chapter 14 verse 18 says, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation. So I think a lot of people like really concentrate on, on the end of this verse, and that is a real thing. But I, I think the thing that stood out to me this time is that it talks about how the Lord forgives and that he's long-suffering. And it says that the guilty will not be cleared. So then I think that just denotes it's those that are not seeking his great mercy, which was uh, mentioned earlier in the passage. And so that's, that's like a refreshing take on that because I think we always just concentrate on the end of that verse. So <clears throat> Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 8 says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is your countenance falling? If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted too? And if you don't do well, then sin lies at the door. And unto you shall be his desire, and you shall rule over him. <coughs> and verse 8 says, And even after God's warning, you know, he had time. You know, he could have chosen an alternate path, but, you know, he didn't listen. He didn't heed God's warning. And then verse 8 says, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the story is so sad because it's clearly about failed purpose. Like there was an opportunity, um, there was an opportunity for Cain to choose a different path. But he didn't discipline himself, and he didn't partner with the ways of the Lord for meekness, and he didn't heed God's warning. So, Second Chronicles chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa, and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you be with him, 
And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season, Israel had been without the one true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. But when they, in their trouble, did turn to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him, he was found of them. And in those times, there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in. But great vexations were upon all of the inhabitants of the countries. And nation was destroyed of nation, and city of city. For God did vex them all with adversity. Be ye strong, verse 7, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Okay, and this is still the prophet talking to King Asa. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and he put away the abominable idols out of the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of all the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all of Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon. And they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So, and then this end part is um, really wonderful. So verse 10, it says, So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa, and they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all of their hearts and with all of their soul. In verse 13, And that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel shall be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman, and they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets. And all of Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart. And they sought him with their whole desire. And he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. So, um, Scripture tells us the story of Asa. Um, you know, it's kind of like whenever you are... Reading about the kings of Israel, um, it kind of sums up their kingship at the beginning. It'll say, you know, such and such did what was good and pleasing and right in the sight of the Lord. And they put away the idols and, you know, these are the ways that the people prospered. And then sometimes when you see in scripture the way that a king's reign is summed up at the beginning, it's just like, you know, they did great wickedness. They did more great wickedness than this person before them. But Asa, he started out pretty well. Um, and this is an example of everyone being on one accord. He did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord as God. He took away the altars of the strange gods in the high places. He broke down the images. He cut down the groves. And um, his mother, the queen, she built an idol for herself out in a grove. And he, he found it. And so they like cut down this idol and he like removed her as queen. And I was like, way to go, Asa. So that was great. Um, he made, so that was how he started out. But then at the end, um, you know, the Lord had given him peace on all sides. And <clears throat> there was a neighboring city nearby. And some people that wanted to attack Israel, they had gone over to the city. 
and they were laying siege, they were planning to lay siege to, to Israel. And so instead of Asa, you know, talking to the prophet, waiting on the Lord, asking the Lord what to do, he took some vessels, some gold and stuff out of the temple, and he made a, a pact with a neighboring army, an army that was actually an ally to the army that was going to attack them from the next city over. And he said, like, hey, we have a league between you and me. You know, be, be an ally with us and, you know, dissolve this ally with these people that are going to attack us, and then we'll be one. And so he did that, and um, the army that was preparing to attack in a neighboring city, they realized that they lost their alliance because the, the people that they were affiliated with had just joined with Asa and the children of Israel, so they got scared and they left. And so... Um, I think Asa was really proud of himself after that because I think he's thinking with his carnal mind, you know, I just saved my people from an attack that was mounting. I just saved us from, from an attack. Um, but the Lord wasn't happy about it. The Lord wasn't happy about it because um, the Lord said, you, you know, I, I provided victory for you in times past, and if you had trusted me, with this, I would have done the same thing. And the Lord was saying, this army that we could have slew, who is your enemy, is now your, you know, your mate. And this is not cool. And so um, the, the prophet came and talked to Asa. And then we pick up in Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. And he's saying to him, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. And so that was, that was the effect of, of not having a perfect heart towards God, um, doing something in his own strength. And the word perfect there is a Hebrew word, it's Salem, and it means quiet, just, peaceable, perfect, and made ready, okay, and that's, um, that's the condition of the heart that God looks for so that he can show himself strong on behalf of people, and Asa's heart was not perfect before the Lord, and he sought his own plans instead. <coughs> so then, Second Chronicles um, 16 picks back up in verse 10 where it says, And then Asa was wroth with the seer because of the word that he had gotten. So he put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. And behold, the acts of Asa, first and last, lo, they are written in the book of kings of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Asa in the thirty and ninth year of his reign was diseased in his feet. And this next part is really interesting. Until his disease was exceedingly great, yet in his disease he sought not the Lord, but to the physicians. And I had never seen that before. You know, um, I went to Christ for the Nations. It's a college here in Dallas. It's a charismatic evangelical church and um, they believe in signs, wonders, and miracles, and, and moving in, in the Spirit as the Lord would heal. And I just, I never heard it presented like this, that somebody was sick, and they just trusted the doctors and not God. And it's in the Old Testament, so it's like, wow. Okay, so that's, that's always been an expectation of the people of God, 
you know, that they would trust God for their healing and for their body and for their well-being. And um, I just never noticed that. So he was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great, exceeding great. Yet in his disease, he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers and died in the one and fortieth year of his reign. And so that just shows me that once your heart is no longer um, in the right posture towards God, when your heart is no longer perfect before the Lord, it's just a slippery slope because Asa started out so strong. He, you know, he removed his mother as queen. Um, he did do great exploits. He did trust the Lord at the beginning, and then it just um, slowly downhill as he started making those concessions about the posture of his heart. So, First <clears throat> Samuel chapter 18, verses 8 through 15 says, And Saul was very wroth. Everybody's mad. <laughs> Everybody's so mad. <laughs> Goodness. <clears throat> I work with the kids, um, with babies, and um, I think the first way that you express like being a human is, is through your emotions, and they got the mad part down. <laughs> and, and they're so little, and they get so mad, you just, oh, you so mad. <laughs> you so mad, I'm sorry. <laughs> But I'm, I'm thinking about this. Um, <clears throat> so Asa was mad at the seer. Now Saul is mad. And it says, The saying displeased him, verse 8 still, and he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And I just see him. I used to be a preschool teacher too. And <laughs> I just see him with his arms folded over his chest, you know, scowling and grimacing that he didn't get the highest out accolades. And so it said, they have ascribed but thousands to me, and what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. And we just, we just learned about that, how that vision can be turned and, and you can take the righteous vision of the Lord and then suddenly not be in your purpose and you're eyeing somebody and it's, it's not good. <clears throat> and so it came to pass on the morrow, I guess the next day, that an evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house. <clears throat> Excuse me. And David played with his hand as at other times. So he was playing the harp. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. <laughs> And David avoided out of his presence twice this happened. And this is interesting, okay, because, you know, David was but a young lad, you know, and uh, he was serving, serving his king. And I know David understood the extension of his role. He's, he's serving the Lord through the things that he's doing. And so Saul is after him. And um, I could just imagine... I was a nanny one time too, so like I've had all these different jobs. But when you're serving someone, you know, your job is to make sure that you're, you're honoring them, you're taking care of what's needed. And for David to be in this, um, I think, honorable but subservient role, and the person that he's entrusted himself to um, is trying to kill him, 
you know, that's just, that's so tough to deal with. <clears throat> but it tells us why Saul did this, not just because of what they said. We get a little bit of insight into his, his psyche in verse 12. It says, and Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. And that's, I can't imagine that feeling. But I would imagine that a more appropriate response would be to, to have a repentant heart, right? To go back before the Lord instead of trying to um, destroy the one who, who God has put in your life to bless you. Therefore Saul removed him, him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. <laughs> you notice that? <laughs> he made him a captain over a thousand. And he went out and... <laughs> That's a little petty. <laughs> no, you're not going to be over 10,000. You're going to be over 1,000. <laughs> so um, it says, He made him a captain over 1,000, and he went out and came in before the people. So he's still doing great exploits on behalf of the kingdom, and people are still like, yes, David is riding through on the steed. He is helping our country. And David, this is my favorite part, he behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. That's, that's the goal right there. That's, that's our goal to, for God to feel like that about us, and that's our goal as educators and caregivers and people who take care of young ones. We want them to behave themselves wisely in all of their ways and for them to know and feel it and for other people to be aware that the Lord was with our, is with them. So then verse 15 says, Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him, like all the more. And so that, that's just like, that's wild. Okay, so we're in 1 Samuel right now. But if we flip back to Genesis, we're going to um, go back into the continuation of Isaac's story. So he's honoring the Lord through a steadfast heart. <laughs> And God will bless him as he blessed his father. <clears throat> okay, so Genesis 26, um, verses 1 through 6 says, And there was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared to him and said, don't go to Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn to this land, and I will be with you, and I'll bless you. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because that, Abraham, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And Isaac dwelt in Gerar. So I like God is, again, like giving him the download, just like he gave to his father, telling him all the things that he had planned, reminding him of the covenant, um, telling him, this is what you have to do, and if you continue to do this, this is what I shall do. And then at the end, he just, you know, God remembers our faithfulness. 
So he's talking to Isaac, and he's reminding him that Abraham obeyed my voice, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And then <clears throat> the perfect summation of that is Isaac then obeyed the Lord, and he stayed and dwelt in Gerar. So the Lord blesses, honors, and upholds those who are upright and of perfect heart before him. So Genesis 26, uh, verses 12 through 14 says, Then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great, and he went forward, and he grew until he became very great. For he had possession of flocks and possession of herds and great stores of servants, and the Philistines envied him. Okay? So Isaac sowed and reaped really quickly, and his bounty was a hundredfold. I think it's so interesting that they talk about how he just goes into the land, and the same year the Lord blessed him. So it said that he sowed it and received in the same year a hundredfold. So I'm just like, wow, God is doing things. That reminds me of this story. I've, I've told the kids this story, so whenever I start to tell them, and Mighty Kids, they're like, we already know this story. So you guys don't know this story, so I will tell you. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> during my time in Bible college, I chose the missions major, and so we got to hear a lot of stories of great men and women in the faith and people who really, really loved God, and they're out you know, in the, in the mission field. And sometimes all you got is, is God, like that's it, you know, especially without the creature comforts that some of us might be used to. So um, we heard the story about these missionaries that had come to a village and they, they just stopped at the first village off of the river and they started to, to speak with the people about God and they started to minister to them and they, you know, did the cross-cultural, like, thing that happens as missionaries start to ingrain themselves into a, a people group and um, everybody just continued life as normal and the village received the joy of the Lord and they received the Lord very easily. It was just a very easy conver conversion and it was great. And so the missionaries are there. Um, a couple months go by and um, a chief from like the neighboring village like way up the stream comes and he says, We've heard of, of your God. We've heard that you guys have converted to um, a new God. You serve some new God, and we want to serve your God too. And so the missionaries were overjoyed at this, naturally, and they said, why? Why do you, like, what have you heard? You know, why would you want to, you know, become a Christian? And the chief said, ever since this village converted to your God, um, we can't catch any fish. So, so all the fish come here and we can't catch any fish. And so uh, we want to become a Christian because we know that your God provides. And so um, I think that's a really great story. And that happened in more recent history than, than the story we read in Genesis 26 about Isaac sowing and reaping that same year a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. And because of his uprightness and his devotion to the plan of God, his bounty was a hundredfold. So yeah. <clears throat> the next verse that we're going to read is 2 Samuel 12 verses 1 through 13. 
So chapter 12, I'm sorry, verse 12 says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came to him. This is a really dramatic part. If we were um, watching like a telenovela, like this is, <laughs> this is the height of the drama right here, what's about to happen. So this is after David and Bathsheba, and then David tries to get Uriah. He calls him home from battle, tries to get him to go to his wife's house, and Uriah's an honorable dude, so he sleeps on the front porch of the, the king's steps, and he's like, I'm not gonna go be with my wife when everybody's, you know, in battle. So then David says, okay, send him back to war and put him in the hottest battle. And, and when everybody's coming to him, retreat away from him so that he dies. And so this happens. And um, so David has just done the unthinkable. And um, to this point, it looks like nobody except maybe the servants in, in the king's house know about what happened. And of course, poor Bathsheba, that's, that's just a really hard thing that she went through being asked of that by the king. And so then it says in verse 12, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children, and it did eat of his own meat and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom and was to him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take his own flock from his own herd and to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But instead of taking one of his, one of his he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it, and the man for the man that was come to him and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said unto Nathan as the Lord lives the man that has done this thing shall surely die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity and Nathan said to David you are the man Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Verse 8, And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and I gave you a house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given you unto you such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be thy wife, and has slain him in, with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your, wife, your wives before your eyes, and give them unto your neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of, of this son. Because you did it secretly, I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the son. And David said unto Nathan, the best thing you can say if you're in this situation, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. Um... That's like a really big turning point for David because we don't know like what led up to this because at the beginning of that story, which we didn't read, you know, there's that, that verse that says it is in the time where kings go out to war, David was in his bed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
And so um, we don't know like what happened to get David to this point, but he's he's kept going and at the apex of this, um, he's confronted with the righteousness of the Lord and I'm so glad he backed down. I'm so glad he repented. I'm so glad he continued to turn so that his heart could be right again before the Lord because how many kings do we read about in the Bible where a prophet brings it to them hard, the correction, the word of the Lord, and instead of backing down and saying, you know what, I've sinned, you know, I've, I've done this evil, like, Lord, forgive me, and being repentant, because that's always the goal. God always wants the relationship to be restored. Um, you know, David could have had a different end to his story if he had had a different heart, if he had been a different king, if he had been a different person. And so you can tell by Nathan's response <clears throat> that he said, um, well, the Lord has put away your sin. You, you, shouldn't, you won't die. That response uh, shows that the Lord had already forgiven David because he was repentant of his actions. And so from then on, war was upon the kingdom as David reigned. So like we know that David had battle after battle after battle. And I until I really read this text and looked and saw how God responded to it, because I think I had always thought that the penalty for what happened with Bathsheba was the death of the child, um, but I didn't realize that a part of it, the consequence was that there would be war during his kingship, and um, that was something that I had never noticed before um, while just reading the text. And so I... Um, so it says, from then on, war was upon the kingdom of David. Um, and these actions inadvertently helped to keep him from building the temple. Because the Lord was pleased that David had the heart to build him a home, a temple. But because of the bloodshed and many wars fought, David was to let Solomon build the temple in his stead. Mm -hmm. Like the prophet that came and talked to him. That's beautiful. He definitely had a repentant and, heart. And he was he was tempted with Bathsheba in the first place because of his fatigue. Well, mm. because of his lust, but it was because of his fatigue of war that mm. he didn't go out and war when kings went out to war. He was tired of it. Mm -hmm. You know, he had never not been at war. He was so tired of it. He played hooky, basically. Mm. And as a punishment, then he would always have more. Yeah. And the prophecy that evil would come from within his own house came, as you know, from Absalom. Mm hmm. And Tamar. That. Yeah. So being perfect in your heart has never been more paramount than it is now. It's always been, I think, a, a very strong need, but even, even now as it was then. 
So Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 2 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. And the word holy there is the Hebrew word kadosh. I have heard, um, like, Josh Garrels <laughs> say this word in a song. <laughs> uh, but it means sacred, a saint, a holy one. And so that was the mandate, even to Moses, to the children of Israel, to be holy, to be a saint, a holy one, for the Lord is holy. And you just keep seeing it mirrored. Um, be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. So <clears throat> we can't talk about being perfect without mentioning the story of Job. Um, Job 1, verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz, or Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. And his substance was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of ox oxen and 500 donkeys and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. This is so beautiful and picturesque. Like, this is, what a life. And verse 5 says, And it was so, and when their days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. So he loved his family very much, and he loved the Lord very much. And he was continually offering those offerings to the Lord um, from that position of friendship with God on behalf of his, his family. And um, I love that it said... Um, that maybe my sons have sinned by cursing God in their hearts. You know, that's, that's, a, that's true. It is a sin to curse God in your heart. But the fact that Job was actively aware of that and consistently, you know, making offerings for his children in case that was happening, that was, he's a good father. So um, the word perfect in this one is the Hebrew word tom. It means to be complete to be perfect, to be coupled together, to be undefiled, upright, sound, and wholesome. Because at the beginning it says there was a man that was perfect and upright. He feared God and eschewed evil. That Job was perfect and upright before the Lord. Okay, so the Lord told the enemy that there was no one like him on the entire planet. So we're going to read about that. So uh, Job 1, verse, verses 8 through 21. And the Lord said unto Satan, so he had just asked him, like, where are you coming from? And Satan says, I've been going around making mischief. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so then the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? You're like, oh, what an excellent recommendation, Lord. <laughs> 
enemy. Have you considered my servant Job? And then God says something that just blew my mind. He says, there is none like him in the earth. Guys, the Lord sees the entire earth. He sees every person in the entire planet at the same time. And he's telling the enemy, there is nobody like, like this guy in the whole earth. That, guys, we can be like that. You know, that's, that's us. That's our, um, that's our heritage. And so he said, there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. And Satan answered to the Lord, with bitterness, no doubt. And he said, does Job have fear God? Oh, does Job fear God for naught? Has not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side that you've blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch everything he has and he will curse thee to thy face. Doesn't that sound so personal? <laughs> He will curse you to your face. The guile. Goodness. And then, okay, so verse 12. And the Lord said unto Satan, very calmly, I imagine, Behold, all that he has is in thy power. Only upon himself put not, put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at their eldest brother's house. Verse 14 says, there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside him, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and only I have escaped alone to tell thee. Okay, so this is bad news that Job is getting. And then it says in verse 16, While he was still speaking, there also came another and said, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And only I am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was still speaking, more bad news, the third messenger came and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, and have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Okay. So verse 18, the bad news keeps coming. So while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay, this is the best verse. Verse 22. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Okay. Well, that's a really hard day, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really hard day. <laughs> Can you imagine a day like that? Like, I can't. Calamity befell him. We know the story. Okay, so 
We'll skip ahead, I'll tell you. His friends come and visit. The thing that struck me about when his friends visited is it said that like he was so sad and in despair and just beat down that his friends sat there with him in utter silence for seven days because his grief was so, so much. They didn't even talk until they started talking and they shouldn't have. <laughs> Job's friends. Oh, they should have stayed silent. <laughs> what is that proverb says about a fool? Everybody thinks that he's smart until he starts talking. Like, they could have just sat in silence with that man. Yeah. So, everyone speaks. Most of them should not have said anything. God answers Job out of the whirlwind, and his friends are punished for providing bad counsel. And then, of course, Job is restored in every way, which is great. Now, what the story of Job teaches us is that sometimes you can have a perfect heart, you can be upright before God, and calamity can still strike. Okay? Like, I, I think that's important for us to say. And um, we, as mature sons, as saints, as pneumatikos individuals, we have to do the harder work to also be discerning, right? Because it's one thing to have calamity hit you left and right. It's another thing to actually be able to see through it, see the purpose and the vein of God as things are happening and be able to see what God is doing or, or what is happening. And we must know the difference between calamity striking due to our heart condition like when David lost his first child, right? That was directly a result of, of his actions, and that was the penalty, right? But then we also have to know the difference between a testing or refining occurring, like with Job, because Job's heart was perfect, and he didn't sin, you know, at that point. He was still good. <laughs> and so... <clears throat> We must not live in a works-based relationship with God. We must simply be who he says and do as he instructs because obedience is better than sacrifice. And you guys remember the, the context of that, that scripture, um, that Saul had been given a mandate and he didn't follow it. He didn't obey what the Lord told him to do and he went and sacrificed things that God had asked him to, to get rid of. And the, the prophet came to him and said, like, no, you can't be proud of yourself for doing this. Like, obedience is better than sacrifice. And so um, we must thoroughly understand the difference between adversities coming because we are upright um, versus the Lord chastening us because we are not, like, perfectly in the middle and doing what we are called to do and being exactly who we're supposed to be. Because I think the thing that it never changes is that hard things are going to happen especially to God's people. But if you want to weather it well, if you want to make it out and be able to go into the next season and continue to be victorious in this and in other aspects, you have to be able to, to stay, stay the course and you have to be able to have a perfect heart before the Lord. And um, that's, that's the crux of it all. Um, it also made me think about the parable of the sower you know, it says, because of the word, the trials came. And we must remain steadfast with a perfect heart before our God. So I will um, finish with Matthew 5:48 again. So it says, Be ye therefore perfect, 
even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And um, it means to be complete, to participate in the cooperative fellowship with God towards an appointed conclusion. Of course, that conclusion is appointed by God. And so paraphrased, it is be complete in a cooperative fellowship with God for his plan because God is complete and he is laboring also with you according to his plan. Amen. That was the teaching on this fine Sunday morning about being perfect as our Father is perfect and being holy as our Father is holy. So I want to just pray over us that we would um, that we would keep our hearts in this place. So Father, I thank you for this good, good word that you brought this morning. I thank you for bringing us here today and for giving us clarity, because I know, um, you know, we have cultural meanings for what what things mean, like perfect. But to be able to truly um, look in the scriptures and discern rightly what you would say, to rightly divide the word of truth, thank you for that gift. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that is in us, that is uh, continually bringing to remembrance the things that you have spoken and that you have taught us. I pray that um, you help us to guard our hearts, and I pray that we will continually have hearts made of flesh, not one of stone. Um, I thank you for your renewing and your refreshing. I thank you for the, the blood of sprinkling and for a renewed mind that we would be able to um, operate in the measure that you've called us to operate in and that we would not be skewed either way to the left or to the right, but that we would go forward. So I thank you for all of these things. I thank you for girding us up, Lord. Um, I thank you for the deep continued wisdom and revelation that will come forward to us in the days ahead, especially as seminars coming. And... um, We just thank you for it in Jesus' name. We seal these words. Amen. 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 Thank you, everybody. Well done. Thank you.